you have your Bibles, please turn to the sixth chapter of First Timothy. One last time here, until the Lord Jesus Christ returns, the church is called to faithfulness. And faithfulness is not easy. But rather than writing the whole church per se, Paul has been writing a letter to the preacher in Ephesus, a young man named Timothy. He's the one primarily responsible to proclaim the truth. We've seen that havoc is being wreaked on the church by false teachers and leadership who teach false doctrine through speculation and insistence on self-denial and overemphasis on the mysteries of the Old Covenant. And last week, Paul finally revealed the reason for all this. They loved money. They desired above all else to be rich. They're hoping to profit from being in positions of leadership in the church, believing that the godliness, the manifestation of Christ to which the church had been called was their means of obtaining this gain. And so the love of money, which Paul calls a root of all kinds of evils, had overtaken their minds to the degree that they were no longer able to teach the truth that had been handed down to them through Christ and the apostles. And in this last section of First Timothy this morning, Paul tells Timothy what the defense is against falling prey to the same temptations. And it's not simply about rejecting the love of money. It's not simply about knowing that that's wrong and trying not to love money or gain. It's about embracing something else, loving something else. There's something in this then for all of us, even though Paul is writing mainly to the preacher. To live believing in Christ for salvation in this world is not mainly a walking away from something, but walking towards something else. And so the whole text is characterized by commands, by words of action, not passivity, not retreat, not denial. The pursuit of faithfulness in the church and in our lives is a fight to take hold of eternal life. Let's pray. Father, for your name... And it's renowned in the heart of your people this morning for your son and for your gospel. Make me preach your word clearly, truthfully, accurately, boldly, humbly, that all who hear may believe and understand. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Look at verses 11 and 12 here of chapter 6. He says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Paul wants to rouse timid young Timothy for this task. He's the man of God in Ephesus. This was the title given to Moses in Deuteronomy 33, to David in Nehemiah 12:24, to Elijah. In 1 Kings 17, 18 to Elisha and 2 Kings 4, 7, Timothy is being charged with a massive undertaking in the church as God's spokesperson. That's what that phrase means in Ephesus. The one commissioned by God for the task of preaching is not to love money, cannot love money. He isn't supposed to have the cravings that cause people to wander away from the faith and pierce themselves with many pangs that plunge people into ruin and destruction back in Verses 9 and 10. So it makes us ask, is the Christian life or the life of the preacher mainly about denying the flesh? Is that what all of this is about? No. 
If you'll notice, Timothy's life is not flight, it's fight. He does not simply flee, he pursues. Flee these things, what he had just mentioned in 9 and 10, but look at the second part of verse 11. Pursue, so flee and pursue. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Which means human nature, our wills, do not allow for a vacuum. It's not like nothing can be there. If Timothy's heart was to remain pure for his task, he couldn't simply flee from sin. He had to pursue righteousness. God does not leave us without direction. If we're to remain faithful, then we can't simply concern ourselves with what we aren't trying to do, but with what we're trying to run after. Paul wants Timothy to pursue six things in particular, right? Righteousness, that which is holy and pleasing to God. Godliness, that which will make Christ most clear. Faith, which is what justifies and endures to the end. Love, the fruit of the Spirit that fulfills the whole law. Steadfastness, an enduring spirit that won't quit. And then gentleness. Pursue gentleness as the preacher. The hallmark in the pastoral epistles of true spirituality. A spirit of kindness, gentleness. Among God's people. You take all these things together. It's not a passive life. Look at verse 12. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And about which you made the good confession. In the presence of many witnesses. Again Christianity is not defined mainly. By the things we're commanded not to do. It's characterized by the things we are now pursuing in life. As God's children in this world. Now why does that matter? Why does it matter to make the distinction between fleeing and pursuing or that we aren't characterized mainly by what we're not doing, but what we are to be doing? Because if we perceive our faith as mainly an issue of what we deny, it will center our lives on our action and our effort. And that leads to the kind of speculation and self-denial that has led the false teachers astray because we can't help but create rules for ourselves as though the law has the power to straighten us out. Our flesh will even corrupt the call to be holy by thinking the power to accomplish it lies within our willpower. So the focus of the Christian life is not inward, beloved, it's upward. Our lives are to be centered on what Christ has granted us Granted to us in his life, his death and resurrection for us. That pursuit, which is nothing less than a life of faith in God to carry us, rather than a life of sight fixed on our own works and effort, will purify us on the journey precisely because it fixes our eyes on the one thing that can save us and can make us new, Christ himself. Together, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. To look at Christ is to be transformed. And it is a fight we're learning because our flesh does not want to go away. Again, that's verse 12. Fight the good fight. Take hold of eternal life. Paul doesn't want Timothy to back into eternal life. But like he just stumbled into it when he was really focused on himself. He wants him to take hold of the eternal life to which he'd been called and about which he had made the good confession when he believed. Timothy, do you see what Christ has bought for you? Go take it. This is the opposite of trying to earn our salvation. This is the epitome of faith alone. Taking hold is to believe. 
It means both hands are now free to grab onto Christ and not let go. What has Paul been arguing against and calling out this whole letter? The idea that eternal life can be gained by adding to the truth. That eternal life can be gained by righteous self-denial and works. All of these things and special knowledge. To flee from that is to pursue the sufficiency of Christ in the gospel. Empty your hands of all these things, Timothy. Empty your hands of all this belief in yourself. All this unnecessary baggage in order to firmly take hold of eternal life in Christ. The eternal life Paul is talking about here is nothing other than the salvation in which Timothy once believed there in verse 12. Look at verses 13 and 16, or 13 through 16. He writes, I charge you in the presence of God, just like 118, who gives life to all things. And of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. The preacher is accountable to God himself. That's the weight of this charge. Do you see what Paul is doing here? Timothy, you and I have been given a charge to be faithful. And under that charge, we minister in the presence of God who gives us life. And in the presence of his son, who, by the way, Timothy, also made the good confession in the presence of witnesses, namely Pontius Pilate, who would deliver him up to be crucified We have as our forerunner, Jesus Christ, the faithful and righteous. Timothy, he fought the good fight before Pilate. You fight the exact same fight in Ephesus. Now, by linking Jesus and Timothy here and what they were called to do, we realize that we have one fight in the church then. It's the same fight it's always been. To declare and proclaim who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished. That is what we're fighting for. And that charge to maintain that fight is given in the presence of God for the minister. This is a charge to Timothy in verse 14 to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. The commandment that is to be a faithful minister in verses 11 and 12. Keep that free from reproach. In other words, don't give up. Don't waver. Don't compromise. Jesus is with you. The one who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Timothy, despise the shame and is now seated at the right hand of God where he's keeping faithful watch over you. I charge you in his presence, the one who has gone before you. False teaching had created an emergency in the church that required Paul to remind Timothy of of the fact that Jesus is not just Lord in the church, but is the ever-present Lord of the church. And in verse 14, it's revealed that the emergency in the church that is created by this charge is only removed, it only stops when Christ is revealed. That's how long Timothy must remain faithful. And since Jesus didn't appear in Timothy's lifetime, the minister that reads it now has to hear these words as though they're written to him. We make the good confession until Jesus finally returns. There will never be a moment in the church where the centrality of Christ and the eternal life he gives cannot be front and center. In verses 15 and 16, Jesus will be displayed at the proper time, 
by God himself, the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. In the spirit of making the good confession, Paul challenges two of the Roman Empire's greatest idols for his young charge. Rome's political pragmatism and ivory tower Greek philosophy. When Paul says that God was the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords, it was a direct challenge to the beliefs the Roman Empire had about itself and about Caesar. Paul reminds Timothy that God and his son rule and reign over the earth and what Timothy proclaims cannot be overcome by them. Then to say that God alone is immortal challenged the Greek assumption that man had inside of him the potential of attaining immortality. And beloved, these two challenges are as relevant today as they were in Paul's time. There's always a fight from our side about who is sovereign, about who rules and reigns, whether it comes from political places of power or from individualism. And there's always a fight for the autonomy and greatness of the individual who has it within himself, allegedly, to obtain salvation or to obtain eternal life. But it's God alone who gives life to all things. These are the truths that shape us, that make us what we are, that hold us together in the face of adversity. And these are the truths that hold up the preacher so that he never comes to believe he's arguing for himself. To God alone be honor and eternal dominion then, Timothy. No one and nothing else. Paul holds up the truth about what Timothy is to pursue by reminding him of the power of the truth and who is behind it. We pick it up in verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So there's still another charge. We're still in that charge related to money in chapter 6, reminding us that the love of money and the desire for riches will always be an issue in the church because the church is filled with people. It will always be a temptation for the preacher in this age, of course, where money actually has some value. It will have none in the age to come. But now Paul gives counsel to those in the congregation who are rich. And the counsel is not give up your money, stop being rich. Notice that. That's not the counsel he gives. Their primary charge from God is that their wealth not go to their head and make them prideful, haughty. That makes me think the love of money corrupts us so deeply because it's fed by a desire to be a big deal. That's how it infects leadership anyway. But the biggest temptation the believer faces comes from our own desire to be great. And since in this age money can buy that greatness, at least to some degree, we desire it above almost anything else. And Paul's next clause in this sentence reminds us that we place hope in what we desire. We desire things precisely because of what we believe they'll get for us or do for us. So the rich in this present age must also not set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. What a sentence that is. 
Riches are alluring and money can buy a lot. And there's a certain temptation about being so hedged in that you're basically safe no matter what happens. There's a sense of security that comes from that. But there is no hope for the believer in that which is uncertain. Beloved, and riches are uncertain. You see what Paul is doing here, again, calling the rich, calling Timothy away from what is uncertain towards the only thing that is certain, God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. We're not going to have, we're not going to lack enjoyment if we lack money in him. That's what God is telling us. The translation, God owns everything. It's all his anyway, and he provides. The rich have been made rich by God, first of all. What we have has been given to us to enjoy by a God who loves us. And so the counsel here is not necessarily for the rich to give up their wealth, but to honor God with it. Again, ascetic self-denial is not automatically holy or virtuous. What we turn from only honors God if in turning from it we are turning to Him for everything. To turn from riches or from riches and live an ascetic lifestyle of self-denial profits nothing unless in turning from it we've turned to God as our only source of life and hope and salvation. Virtue doesn't save. Empty virtue doesn't accomplish or help you take hold of eternal life. God is not only calling us from, but to. And what he calls us to is so much more than what he calls us from, beloved. Come away from this world and what it promises you. There's a God who owns everything and provides for us, who is worth hoping in, whose life and salvation are not uncertain. So let wealthy believers in verse 18 do good. That is, be rich in good works. Well, what do good works look like for the rich? Are they paying God with their money? Are they buying their salvation? No. If God is rich enough to provide the world or to provide for the world, he doesn't need my money, but my neighbor probably does. So be generous and ready to share. And by so doing in verse 19, store up treasure for yourselves as a good foundation for the future. And he doesn't mean old age. Although it isn't a sin to save up, that's not his point. His point is eternity. Here it is again. Not only look away from the world, look to eternity. The world in its present form is passing away, Paul says elsewhere. In 2 Corinthians, where else then would it make sense for the believer to fix one's eyes but the true future, right? Eternity. How well did Paul know the words of Jesus? Matthew six nineteen through 21, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Notice that Jesus does not say, don't lay up treasure, it's wrong. Jesus is trying to tell you where to lay up your treasure so that you won't lose it. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our hearts will follow what we desire the most. By letting go of the hope that riches will bring life in this world. That we can amass treasure here that will last or satisfy. What are we doing in doing that? What would be the point of that in verse 19? To take hold of that which is truly life. 
So we all have the same calling, if you think back to verse 12. Rich or poor, preacher or not, take hold of that which is truly life. It's what all of this is about, beloved. The believer lives to take hold of something that isn't here, that won't be found on the earth, that won't be found inside the earth. True life, eternal life. So do you hear the apostle? Does Timothy, do I, do you? True life is in Christ, not in this world. And the only thing that makes sense in the midst of a world like ours is to let go of it in order to take hold of something else. Jesus isn't calling us to mere religion or ceremonies or rules. He's calling us away from those things that can only bring death. He's calling us away from the curse into that which is truly life and only that which is truly life. God himself. John 17, 3, Jesus prays this is eternal life. What is it that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent? That's the reason to live. That's the reason for all creation. That's the reason, beloved, for the church to not just possess and believe, but to proclaim this message in all its purity, completely untarnished by this world and its desires and uncertainties. So First Timothy as a whole has led to these last two verses that sum up Timothy's charge. Look at verse 20. 20. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. What is the primary way to guard the good deposit of the truth that has been revealed to us once and for all in Christ? What's the main way to do that? Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. That is anything that is not what Christ has revealed. All wisdom and truth and life and knowledge and satisfaction and treasure and certainty and life are found in Christ and in Christ alone. Everything else is babble. Everything else is irreverent because it has no respect for God. Everything else is false because it won't last. When Jesus calls us away from the world, beloved, he's not calling us to sacrifice or give up what's really good just because the alternative is right and holy. It's never empty virtue. In calling us away from the world, he is calling us to that which is the best and purest and richest and fullest and most enduring. You see that he's calling you away from what is worthless into what is eternally valuable. Him. Him. It's Jesus versus everything else for us, beloved. It really is. This is the knowledge the church must retain and value above all else. There's the good deposit left to the church by Jesus and his apostles, which means it doesn't derive from any minister. It's something that's been granted to him by God. So the truth the preacher proclaims better be God's truth, not his own. He's in the care of a deposit, someone else deposited, not his own thinking. There's that, what's been left to the church by Jesus and his apostles, and then there's that which is falsely called knowledge. What men come up with, that is, by speculating and making up rules that only end up confusing people. 
and contradicting itself. Here's the final call to avoid that stuff at all costs. It's what the whole letter has been about. That is why a church can't allow itself to be overtaken or infected or infiltrated by what has not been made clear in Scripture. Apparently what is not Christ blurs our eyes to that which is truly life, beloved. And Paul would have us flee from it and avoid it at all costs by professing those things, the things that come from inside of us and our speculation and our wisdom about rules and regulations and knowledge, rather than professing the deposit Some have swerved from the faith. In 119, some had shipwrecked. In 610, some had wandered away. Why? Because they didn't believe that Jesus and what he has chosen to reveal to us are enough. That's why, beloved. That's how simple of a matter all this really is when it comes right down to it. Again, there's the deposit that God gave. And there's the stuff that we try to put into the bank account of the truth. And one saves while the other is so worthless and deadly that it makes people abandon Christ. So the last word in 1 Timothy couldn't be any other word, could it? Grace be with you. More than anything else, we'll need that. The marvelous grace of our loving Lord. It's the only hope we have, beloved. God's unmerited favor on us that He gives because of who He is not because of who we are. That Christ is poured out on us at no charge through His life and death and resurrection, the very means of taking hold of that, which is truly life. Only grace. Beloved, only grace. How will the preacher keep this charge to be faithful? Grace. How will the believer keep this charge to be faithful? Grace. How will the church itself remain faithful against the assaults of the world, the flesh, and the devil? Beloved, Grace. It's always been grace. It will always be grace. At the end of the day, there is literally no other hope for us. The pursuit of faithfulness in the church and in our lives is a fight to take hold of eternal life. All the instructions in the pastoral letters amount to what has been entrusted to the church for all time and must be guarded for the sake of of its preservation, but not because God is just a rigid stickler for details, but because in this deposit is the proclamation of God's grace for sinners that grants us that which is truly life. It's not found in anything else. Therefore, the church has no business even dabbling in what goes beyond these pages. Notice that this last section here that we just read was filled with imperatives, with commands. And again, they're all actions. Flee. Verse 11, pursue, verse 11, fight, verse 12, take hold, verse 12, keep, verse 14, charge, verse 17, guard, verse 20, avoid, verse 20. Why? Because life must be taken hold of, beloved. Self in the world must be released. Our minds must be intentionally fixed on the sufficiency of Jesus to keep the good confession. And this will always be a fight. It's the fight. Fighters, boxers, trained to remove excess fat and gain endurance. When Paul calls the preacher to fight the good fight of faith, he's telling him and us to train our minds through the knowledge of Christ to believe his truth, to have faith in it. Right? It's not fight the good fight of works, fight the good fight of faith. 
Gain the prize of eternal life because you already possess it in him. Come away from this world. Believe that what he has promised you, he has provided for you. That's a fight. Take hold of what is yours. Possess it and live. If I give a gift to my child that I want them to have so much and they don't play with it, it doesn't mean I didn't give it. I gave it. It's theirs. Enjoy it. That's why I got it for you. If I would have known they'd like the box more than the toy all my life, I just would have bought more boxes, right? Anyway, this also implies that what this implies, why it's so important is that it must be that none of this comes naturally, right? None of it comes naturally, not to the man of God, not to the believer, not to the church. Therefore, it's a fight. The fight of the preacher and of the church and of the Christian life. Our endurance in this fight is not a matter of sweat and willpower, though. It's always a matter of what we will believe, of what we'll have faith in. So in the church, the preacher must always hold up the sufficiency of Jesus. The believer must always crave to be reminded and told about the sufficiency of Jesus For the world filled with people that God desires to be saved, the church must proclaim the sufficiency of Jesus. It's a fight, beloved. But here's the thing. We don't stand on faith. We stand on grace. We fight to believe, not to be saved. We don't stand in our fighting We stand on grace and grace is with us and will not fail us. All this letter means is that we must never stop being reminded of this. This is the whole task of the preacher, of the Christian and the church. This is what the deposit gives us the money to do. Make Christ known. For you and for me. Because we need him more than anything. Let's pray. And we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for its clarity. I thank you for its depth. And God, I thank you for your people. So thankful for everyone that's here this morning. Lord, I pray that you would write your word on their hearts and make them remember and call to mind what is told to us and promised to us and granted to us in your Son through the Scripture, Father. In the name of Jesus, we offer this prayer to you. Amen.